Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another State of the Metaverse episode where we try and keep you updated on everything metaverse related so that you don't have to go out and find the gems between all the massive amounts of data that are coming your way. We will do that for you. Also on every episode, just like this week, we have an amazing guest, somebody that is a visionary, has an interesting and impactful vision on what is going on in the metaverse industry. And this week we have for you the amazing Alistair Hume. Alistair, can you give us in a few sentences, tell us something about yourself, preferably something that we cannot find online? Sure thing. Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me. Really great to be here. Um, and yeah, okay. So firstly, right now I'm co-founder and head of design at Axon Park. So our basic mission is to bring next generation education to as many people across the world as possible. And we think uh, networks. Sure. Oh, hell yeah, absolutely. We think network spatial computing is the best way to do that because it just breaks down so many barriers that have been stopping people from getting good education over the last few decades. So yeah, um, before that, I've basically been a design and sci-fi nerd for as long as I can remember uh, as a can kid. a little applause well, there, please? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, as a kid, it was all about crazy spaceships going really fast. And then the older I got and the, the better quality of books I started to read, it was more about how can we manifest optimistic futures. So um, which, uh, just, just a little interjection there that's not in the script, but uh, who's your favorite sci-fi writer? Uh, it still has to be Isaac Asimov with Foundation. It's not necessarily an optimistic book, but it's such a timeless one. <laughs> I'm getting the chills now. What are you? I know that we're going off script already, and Nicola's probably eyeing me over the monitor. But uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the uh, the Foundation series so far? So I think there are probably two ways to look at it for me. The first is the visuals. I think they're absolutely stunning, and the second is the writing. So I've read Foundation dozens of times over my life. And there are a few moments in the series mm. where I think they deviate far enough that it kind of misses over the core concept of a kind of massive, broad look at a future that spans quadrillions, quintillions of people. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very character focused, but it seems to pivot around central characters rather than mm. central concepts and moments in history. Yeah. So it's a very entertaining show and I'm enjoying watching it, but I'm mm. not necessarily recognizing kind of yeah. core of foundations spirit in it it's, yeah i understand it's good fun, though. It's good fun. yeah i totally I, understand. i'm still loving it have you by any chance read the uh, the three-body problem well actually the series is called uh the, um traveling earth the dark forest it? trilogy is it yes yes the dark forest trilogy yeah i have uh it's it scares me <laughs> a lot it's fantastic <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, incredibly good i really I, I read that in 2015 i think mm. first time and I really enjoyed it and especially I loved how it has such a, it, it opened, let me put it this way, it opened my eyes to a different view of our future in the universe, the Asian view, I would say, uh, which is uh, a lot less, you know, happy, happy Star Wars Jedi, uh, we're all going to make it, wag me, than, um, than obviously the Western view of, uh, you know, human superiority. Oh, Let's get it. back to the core. You're a sci-fi nerd. I love that. Uh, I'm so happy that now we can actually, uh, you know, call ourselves nerds and, and be considered rock stars. It was diff very different in the in the 90s and the 2000s, I'll, I'll tell you. It I don't was. know. I mean, how? Yeah. I, I, this is not a nice question to ask, but can I ask your age? Sure. Yeah, I'm about to turn 30. So I was born into VHSs and slow dial-up internet. 
and got to see the rise of smartphones and ultra fast networking. Mm. That's, I have to say, I'm slightly impressed with the fact that you are almost a decade younger than me, but you were still capable of having a view of the world and our future as a, as a species that also, you know, spans not just decades, but decennia. The younger generation sometimes seems to be so focused on the here and now and fast and everything, which of course is, uh, is driven by how our economy and our world works at the moment. We just talked about sci-fi and books, but where did it start? Mm. I think for me, it was always two things in my life that I loved and I never knew how to make them come together and working with firstly virtual reality and secondly with network spatial computing. So metaverses has been a great way to resolve this kind of conflict, but it's always been on the one hand, I've loved designing things. And on the other hand, I've absolutely loved technology and computers. Mm. And when I was a teenager, I, I did them both in equal measure in my free time, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at all. And I ended up choosing to study architecture in the UK, which was an incredible choice. I had such a good time and it teaches you a lot of really, really important skills about thinking about our world, thinking about where it's going, the people that live in it, the kind of tensions, uh, the infrastructure, it, it's great. Um, but when you finish your six or seven years of architecture training, you move into a very kind of consultancy focused job that is about professional service delivery and this great big kind of global spanning uh, vision only really gets to be applied if you're at the top of the industry. Um, and also there was a kind of legacy tech stack in most practices that is upwards of 20 years old and moving very slowly. It's changing in a few places, but I, it was very frustrating. Just a, a quick interjection here. So mm. before I came to work at BeamUp, I worked in a mm -hmm. company called VR Division with Yahya Yazum. Mm. He's an extremely yeah, yeah. talented Unreal Engine uh, developer. Um, I know him. Yeah, I know you know him. Yeah, he's very talented. Uh, we basically met as gaming friends in the, in the division years ago. And then mm -hmm. you know, ultimately we came together and we tried to build this company. One of the things that we tried to do to make money was we did digital visual architectural visualization in Unreal Engine mm. of real estate. And yes. it, it is a big business. And then when I came mm. to work here, uh, I talked with Alex about how that might be a potential market um, initially for us to engage with. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, because Alex, our CEO, has quite a big network of architects. And he said mm -hmm. that he tried several times to pitch the potential of Unreal Engine, potential of you know virtual environments to all these architects, and they just <laughs> don't get it. They just oh don't my get God. it. And I was right. blown away. And it seems to resonate with what you're just telling me now, right? Um, yeah, even more than that. In 2015, I did the exact same thing. I, I pitched uh, Unreal Engine and virtual reality and all the rest as an incredible way to represent and visualize space to clients that don't necessarily think spatially. I was told by a multi, multi-millionaire, globally successful architect, he don't, he doesn't think that computing will ever really have an impact on architecture. And I was. <laughs> I, I can see I can see that perspective because it's not all about computing. It's about articulating physical space. But there's an element of contribution that computers can make. Um, and it's starting to change now. I, I met recently a really fantastic architectural visualization and kind of spatial design metaverse startup in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a couple of years on. They're doing quite well. I think they're about to come out of stealth mode. And they are seeing some really great things from early partners in the architecture world 
who yeah. are thinking ahead. But it's taken a while. <laughs> it's taken a while. It's. I mean, obviously, yeah, people like you and me, I think, please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that we sometimes tend to forget how far ahead we're running of the crowd. Um, and then, you know, when people are like, what the hell are you doing all the way out there? We go like, well, you know, this is the place to be. And you're like, no, there's wolves out there stuff like that. But I can understand that. When I was 22, I had a panic attack that I hadn't started a VR metaverse company yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was when I was 19, I was hard focused on architecture. And for me, the transition into metaverses was coming to realize that so many of the questions about infrastructure and the way we build space that are going to take place in the 21st century and beyond might not necessarily only happen in our physical cities. And I thought there was a tremendous opportunity for people that understand real space and how people use it and also have an understanding of computers and how we build kind of infrastructure in the digital world. Back in, I'd say around age 22, mm -hmm. uh, I had come out of my first kind of stint at university, so an undergrad course, and I was starting to, I, I just got an Oculus DK2, I think it was, yeah. It was, it was my first VR headset, it was Rad, fantastic. Man. <laughs> we're part, we're, we, you and me are part of a mm. very little select group of people that actually owned a, a DK or a DK2, I think. I'm so yeah. proud of that one. I, I did miss the DK, so I'm not an OG OG, but um, yeah, yeah the, the DK2 was, was, my, was my kind of get in. But um, yeah, and I was like, you know, this could help architecture so much. This could be an incredible way for people to meet spatially. Blah, blah, blah. And people across the world already knew this. Um, but it's it's taken a while for this to come on in the exact same way that it took color television, apparently about 20 years to catch on, mm -hmm. um, just because of the kind of lag in hitting critical mass of users. All I can say is uh, I, I hear you, but, uh, you know, I'm 39. And I basically started on the same journey when I was the same age as you were when you started on yours. I dropped out of university because people... You know, I just, I didn't know what, I was studying history. I love that, but I didn't <clears> feel I was going where I was going or that I had, any, that I could do anything with it. There was a value. My very short uh, excursion into politics, thinking that the, the diplomacy might be for me, was uh, a complete disaster. So uh, yeah, and here I am 39 and I'm finally having this conversation with you. So There is um, no wrong age. There's no wrong age, no. When, uh, let's take one step back. Uh, first question, you had a DK2. What was the first thing you played on it? It was actually probably one of the dumbest things I could have possibly played on it. It was a roller coaster simulator. Uh, it was just a kind of a chair on a concentric ring that would spin you I around think... and flip the entire world around. And uh, yeah, I didn't know how to put it on my face properly. So everything was really blurred and I didn't oh. know you needed to find the sweet spot. Yeah. And I remember like, why, why do I want to throw up all of a sudden? <laughs> and uh, yeah, for some reason that was still enough to get me absolutely hooked. Um, so it was around that time I realized I needed to apply my architectural skills to real time. So mm -hmm. Unreal had just released a subscription model, of, I think a while before. Yeah. And I just subscribed to Unreal Engine. I think it was around 15, 18 pounds a month, about a month before they made it free. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then, and then I nerded out in Unreal for a couple of years. During my master's in architecture, I super hardcore focused on virtual space and what it might do for people. Slowly made a transition into the metaverse industry over the years. Nice. I actually did the same roller coaster, so don't feel bad about that one. <laughs> I, I, I am curious, though. I mean, as a big sci-fi uh, fan, mm. did you play Elite Dangerous on your DK2? That's a great question. I did a little bit, yeah. I played a bit of Elite Dangerous, although I think I played more of it um, on the Rift, the first CV1 Rift. Mm. Um, 
It was either really dangerous or it was the competitor game, the really, really massive one that, you know, spans an entire kind of galaxy's worth of procedural planets. Is that Lee Dangerous? Star Citizen. Is that the Not one Star you Citizen. Mean? No, there was Eve there was Elite online. Dangerous. No, but we're talking about it's VR either Elite. game. It might be Elite, actually. Yeah, anyway. I Elite definitely is did. the only one that's that I know of that spans the entire galaxy using all NASA's data and are procedurally mm. generating the rest. That's the one where you dock with giant space stations, right? Yes. Yeah. Then that's the one I played. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. I completely lost myself in that for about 1,500 hours after getting my <laughs> DK2. I literally built a simpit. I, I installed arms mm. under my desk that held mm. a hands-on throttle controls. I installed odd voice attack, which gave me full mm. voice control. And they had special uh, voice profiles with that that aligned with the game. You could get different voices mm. for your AI talking back to you. Bro, wow. for for a good three months, if I wasn't working, I was basically Han Solo. It was... <laughs> 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 that's you absolutely can, fantastic if you haven't tried that i mean it's a massive time sink so mm. you can you can keep playing that game people like you and me are just too you know it's too much of solid stuff to do but if you haven't mm. tried it uh lately i recommend you uh you take a weekend and give it a spin because mm. you'll love it exactly that i have to i have to book off time to get lost in a game but i do give myself the time to do it it's it's where so much inspiration comes from yeah you exactly just, you just have to pick I'm, them it, yes, and now you're touching on such a great point because you just you know des you described how you know you you get that DK2 and then you move to Unreal Engine, um, but you also said you're a sci-fi nerd. We talked about games here. For me, it seems now like 80% of my qualification to be even in this industry and do this job comes from the fact that I've been for my entire life a sci-fi nerd. A gamer? How is that for you? I mean, you just said you, you, you get so much inspiration there. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? I guess it's the same with any kind of business. And I think when you're in a kind of smaller business where you have to really contribute to making decisions with other people, it can manifest a little bit more. But we're now starting to get to the stage in the industry. I, I mean, it's already existing in video games and internet and .com and all the rest for ages. But within kind of network spatial computing of what kind of jobs are available for people? Um, and there are, there are two rough things you need to do in a startup. The first is you need to have a particular skill set that works well with other complementary skill sets to build something. And the second is, in my opinion, you need to be able to think about the big picture and the long term and where this is all going and why. There needs to be some kind of vision. Um, so I, I was focused very much on the long term of what this could do to connect people, to help humanity far before I necessarily knew how to apply my own kind of area of where I've put the most time into uh, kind of my skill set, which I would say is probably space and design. And and then over the years, working with Unreal, kind of building content in Unreal, uh, I figured out how to apply that and kind of work with other specialists. So for example, engineers, programmers, that kind of thing. Ideally, you have to, especially in a small company, understand a little bit of everything as well, so that you understand, you know, what each team member might be doing. Um, and then you have your own area where it's like, hey, guys, I can really help you all do this thing. Um, so that's that's kind of roughly how it's worked. But just for anyone, I, I know a lot of people at the moment who are kind of trying to figure out how to get in the industry are probably feeling a little bit of anxiety about where to start. There are a lot of places to start. Um, and the big ones at the moment, if you're actually wanting to build products, are the environment art side of things. That's building the worlds that you'll be seeing, um, possibly building things like characters. Uh, there is the programming side of things, and it's a very similar skill set to multiplayer game development. And within that, you can do a number of different things as well. There's your typical software, full stack engineering, 
uh, building the back end, building the infrastructure. And if you don't know where to start, this is not personal advice I'd give, but I've seen it work a number of times in the industry. Um, it's just I can't speak from experience because I haven't done this, but is the QA testing route for some of the bigger kind of metaverse projects that already have a lot of content to test. Mm. Uh, a big example is, I believe, Todd Howard, uh, who has obviously been heavily involved in building uh, the kind of Elder Scrolls and Fallout series. Yeah. Bethesda. Uh, I think he started as a QA tester, as far as I remember. Yep. Um, and there are a number of people that did back in the day. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. It was my, my great dream once upon a time when I was a young a gamer and mm. didn't know where to take my life to uh, to do that. Uh, just mm. before I decided that maybe I should go to the World of Warcraft uh, support desk here on the other side of Ireland. Kind of happy that wow. never happened, though. But, <laughs> I but uh, yeah. I, I like what you're saying there, and uh, I would like to add to that for those of you listening or watching. If you want to get into this metaverse space, there is plenty of opportunity. And uh, mm. I, for one, can at least say that over here, for example, at your open metaverse and, and beam up, we hire basically people if they come to us and they're super enthusiastic. And even if they don't know what they want to do or how they want to do it, you know, that's the people that we're most interested in. We mm. even if you don't know exactly how they're going to fit in the team because ultimately to do something like this you need to have massive drive and interest so 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 just showcase that you know don't be afraid that you're mm. you're lacking in in in, uh, in the skills or, or you don't know where to start because it's fine i didn't know mm. i didn't know how i was going to get into this industry myself um and i came from a background in sales and, and i made it in so you can make mm. it <laughs> Yeah, there, there are so many skill sets that can be applied in different ways. Um, and you can make transitions over time to different desks and different areas of expertise within. Um, for anyone that is a bit younger as well, uh, mm. well, any age, but I think a couple of potentially interesting ways at the moment of doing it could, if you just literally want to learn, download mm. either Unity or Unreal Engine, download Blender and start making things. It's, it's incredibly straightforward and there's so much free content and so many tutorials online. Yeah, this is great advice. Uh, I would like to add the same thing. And, I mean, back when I was younger and uh, coding and programming became a thing. I mean, even on my Commodore 64, you know, there was some of that. And I never got into it because for me, writing code was too abstract. But if you look at modern programming, we, of course, obviously we have this, you know, low code and, and even to no code you know, whole movement going on now. I think within a few years, especially with the help of AI, we won't be having to write any code ourselves anymore. Basically what's gonna happen, I think, is like the same kind of speech to text technology that we're now using to, you know, do the basics on Google is also gonna be used to write code and with the help of AI we can just give it instructions and we become directors, I would say. What what are your thoughts on that? You you were making some great points about learning to code without necessarily having to uh kind of learn things like say for example C Python, that kind of thing, if that is too daunting at the beginning. Uh, for example, Unreal's Blueprints system, you'll figure out that you're kind of learning the syntax and logic of programming uh, without necessarily having to kind of understand and pass the code uh, that you would typically need at the beginning, which is awesome. It's a great way in. And then from there, you can kind of increase your skill set over time. 
exactly. Yeah, that's 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 the mm. point I was uh, trying to make, and uh, you emphasized and uh, clarified that perfectly. Yeah. So, with anybody listening, I mean, go out and do it. I mean, I remember back when I was young. Um, I, I downloaded some legal uh, cracked version of Adobe Photoshop and I just spent a lot of time in it trying stuff out mm. and having a lot of fun and that resonated with me and I was capable of doing that and learning it and I still benefit from that knowledge today. When I was doing that, I, I learned so much. It's easy to pick up and I'd say that Unreal Engine right now is in the same kind of place and probably only going to mm. get better over the next few years. You've raised a great point though about Unreal Engine in general. It's, it's just really, really accessible at the moment. It is the same with Unity. I wouldn't necessarily say to anyone just getting started that you need to kind of marry yourself to a particular set of tools because the tools change over time but at the moment the one that i've had the most experience in unreal is really accessible to start learning um there's so much free content out there so many tutorials and they are really focusing heavily on building the tech stack um yeah. for example uh, one of the points that we were talking about earlier before uh, starting this off was things like for example at the moment different companies trying to figure out how they can standardize metaverse protocols Yep. which is a huge, huge undertaking. I think it's going to take a really, really long time. And I don't know how it's actually going to manifest and how standardized it will ever actually be. But companies like Unreal and Unity are involved in that. So if you're wanting to look at ways to build content for the future, and I think particularly more for the long term, as this kind of thing gets more complex, it's a great place to start. I couldn't agree more. I, I love it. Uh, you, you're making a jump here already. You're kind of skipping over. You know, I had some other questions before jumping into the whole open standard conversation. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 but, do that uh, uh, Yeah, you're making a great point. But we'll we, we, we get to that in a second. Let's take mm -hmm. one step back. We're just we're talking sure. about education and how easy it is now to get into uh, to Unreal Engine. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to education, you also made a very conscious choice to focus on that side, and 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 start developing you know, things around education for the metaverse, right? Yeah. Why, why, why did you pick that? What, what drove that decision? And, and then the next question would be, you know, how is that going? That's a great question. Um, so I think there are two ways of explaining this. The first is I, I joined up with Axon Park, I think around a year ago or so as co-founder um, with a chap called Taylor Freeman, um, who we've just been having a lovely time working together over the last year. But um, effectively the way that i kind of joined education was from the hey i can kind of build virtual worlds and virtual games side of things um and then thinking about it was a case of hang on a second what is one of the most transformative things that this kind of technology could theoretically do and that is if we get it right provide people across the world with a very low barrier to entry access to opportunities to change their lives and it's it's always been about education if you can educate a culture you give them the power to make more informed and hopefully more kind of appropriate choices uh, yeah. to allow them to become who they want to be uh you you have to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible which is everyone yeah. um and in the real world it's it's getting more and more difficult every year across the board, um, definitely in the States, but also now in the UK, seeing it more in Europe as well. Education is becoming more expensive, particularly mm -hmm. higher education, yeah. um, to the point where it doesn't necessarily always make sense to kind of undertake the uh, courses that you might want to take, yeah. which is a shame because as a planet and as a society, we need those kinds of skill sets in yeah. order to manifest an optimistic future. Yeah. We need as, as many people who are able to do something to address the problems that we're facing as possible. Yep. Um, so 
that's why we looked at a kind of VR education. It's not just virtual reality, it is also flat screen, it is also on PC, and hopefully over time we're going to uh, service mobile and tablet as well. But the idea is basically, we want to reduce the barrier to entry for really good quality, immersive remote learning. Yeah. Uh, so that you can drastically reduce the cost of courses compared to, let's say, for example, uh, traditional university infrastructure. Yep. Um, beyond that as well. If, if I can just jump in there, because uh, um, the importance of what you're talking about cannot be stressed enough, I'd say. I mean, if ever... You, <laughs> this is a... I mean, I always think of being alive now is really, I, I personally think, is a great gift because we are in such a, a quintessential time for human development. I mean, over the whole course of, of known history, and as far as we know, there's never been a time like this. There's never been a moment like this. We don't know of any other civilizations or any anyone else that's ever been at this point in time where we're making this transition uh, to, you know, this, this, this interconnectivity as mm. we can now achieve. But to capitalize on that, I mean, I was just reading uh, Nick Bostrom's superintelligence the other day, and he talks about the different forms of superintelligence. And one of the ways that he thinks about superintelligence is one that, you know, compared to humankind maybe six million years ago when we were just living in tribes compared to now, is that we, we grew, uh, we developed language, and, and simply mm. our population grew, you know, by a factor of, I don't know, a, a hundred or a thousand uh, times as big. Yeah. And that allowed us to have more brilliant people, but also because we we're communicating and more interconnected to share ideas and therefore to innovate and to grow and to. I think that now we're going to make it, you know, we, we really have an opportunity here. And yet what we see around the world is people that have, there's massive amounts of knowledge. There's all this technology to connect people. And yet the educational level, at least in the Western world, is actually going down because the access to proper education and to all of that information and the learning how to interpret it is actually being more and more restricted because of i don't even know why so yeah that was a very long way of saying that uh, <laughs> I, I really think that yeah. the importance of what you're working on cannot be stressed enough uh, it is absolutely quintessential for our race especially in times like this with climate change and all these these challenges that are also lining up to push us back down to the stone age of <laughs> i do fundamentally believe eventually we're going to get it right it's just how much is it going to hurt before we do and what can we do to mitigate the uh suffering in the meantime um do you think there's we'll a lot of right in time i mean i'm not so sure um, <laughs> it depends on how you how you kind of think of in time and also how you think of getting it right in my opinion um, when often I think, and this is this is a great throwback to the three body problem uh, trilogy. When you imagine the future, you imagine your culture, but with a lot of today's problems fixed, and then a few incredible things that you can't do today. Um, but there's no guarantee that this incredible bright future that we are all kind of help, trying to help build is necessarily a direct continuation of our cultures. It mm -hmm. might be the cultures that evolve after ours starts to disseminate somewhat yeah. but in the same way that's always been how it has been through history if you think of for example the fall of rome the romans didn't disappear they just started calling themselves by different names merge, mm. uh, merging and integrating with other cultures around europe yep. um and they're still here they're still everywhere uh, it's it's the same in the majority of kind of great civilizations that you 
kind of read about in history. They didn't necessarily all just become extinct. Uh, the the fabric of our kind of socioeconomic uh, kind of makeup across the planet just shifted a bit. So will the future that we're all talking about necessarily be recognizable by today's standards? I don't know. But to me, that doesn't matter that it's still our legacy as a people. Um, and I think we owe it to whoever comes next to do the best we possibly can. Uh, so I don't know. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of optimistic people out there that say things like, oh, it's possible to reverse climate change, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. It's not my area. That's probably very I, I just know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, all I know is that the better we can do today and in the coming years to give people access to the kinds of bodies of knowledge that will allow them to address these problems better, talk about these problems uh, in a better way, mm. uh, the better we are. Um, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree yeah. more. Well said. Here, here. Uh, scary stuff <laughs> uh, yeah well yes it's scary stuff but i don't think it's necessarily bad to have scary stuff mm -hmm. i mean i really believe in the carrot and the stick and i'd say that this mm -hmm. is a pretty big stick that we all need to pay some attention to all right so mm -hmm. that explains you know uh definitely why you're, you're working on education and how you see that um that then allows us to to make that the next step because when we're talking about education and you already uh, referred to this um, it's mm. also important to offer it in a way so that it is most accessible to everybody and most mm. easily to um, partake in. And that then brings us to open standards, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we look at the um, the current educational system, for example, around the world, you know, there it, it's still in, in, in extremely diverse. For example, you know, if you go to the United States where religion takes still um, crazy enough, in my opinion, but such a very strong uh, role in society as we've uh, and, mm. and the legislative body etc as we've seen or last week again of course with the whole um, um, abortion ruling in uh, Roe versus Wade mm. yeah there's there's a lot of differences around the world and yet I, I you know me personally I'd love to hear your vision on this I think that um, our move to the metaverse in some ways it could be a clean slate where we can start from scratch with all the knowledge and experience we have, uh, you know, from the past uh, few hundred years, and we can maybe avoid making a lot of the same mistakes and create a system that's really global, accessible mm. for citizens of the world. There's now all of these massive corporates and organizations and they're coming together. You know, mm. it's, it's even a Microsoft Meta-led, um, I think, uh, initiative for Metaverse Open Standards mm -hmm. Forum. I've had I've had people here on the radio in the Netherlands already say this is this is ridiculous this is bullshit. Imagine that people were doing this this in the '90s when you know the internet came up and that, that would have never worked. What's, what's your take mm. on this? Um, so I think there are two really great points there. The first is the infrastructure and tech side of things, and the second is how if it's really gotten right and metaverses can be interconnected, it might be a fantastic kind of cultural knock-on effect. Uh, so let's let's touch on both of those one after the other. So let's start with the tech because this is the one that's been driving me, my co-founder, and increasingly so our team as well, nuts over the last few months. Um, and that is the uh, kind of question of how do things interoperate between platforms? Because at the moment, if you look at today's current standard of what you might describe as kind of metaverse platforms, most of yep. them, not all of them, but a good number of them are app-based. For example, VR chat, Rec Room, Altspace, you have to download apps. 
there are a few that have web clients. A, a good example of, is Spatial, but mm -hmm. um, the current kind of web uh, gaming framework is somewhat limited. Um, e even on a powerful machine, it doesn't necessarily run very well. And for virtual reality, it's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So the question of how do you standardize metaverse protocols is absolutely colossal. And I'm really glad to see people starting to look at it properly. I just think it's going to take absolutely ages. Um, for example, what are you wanting to standardize? Um, it's it's obviously not going to necessarily be engine because there's at least two or three game engines in the council at the moment. Um, is it going to therefore be programming classes or, or programming standards because there are several different programming languages that are used? Um, is it going to be agreeing on distribution because some of them are you know really focusing on platforms? Some of them are platforms. Uh, some of them might want to go web-based. So what is the standardized element going to be? Um, and how are assets going to kind of interoperate between things? Um, so you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a huge, huge undertaking. I think maybe there are some kind of easier steps that can be taken uh, developing or co-developing some kind of global uh, object standards that might be interpreted by different platforms if they implement them. Mm. So you might have, for example, a kind of standardized uh, cross-platform avatar class that has yeah. standardized, let's say, for example, grabs and mechanics and movement standards. Um, and you know that if you interact with a standardized object class that was developed by this council as well, despite which engine it's implemented in, it's going to interact in a similar way. That could be one interesting way of doing it, but I don't know if that's necessarily what they're talking about. Um, I've seen in the presentation, they were talking about things like, for example, kind of a standard formats, universal scene description, that kind of thing. But that'll only get you so far because so much of what the real problem is, is uh, the the kind of interacting uh, element is the, is the kind of programming side of things. There is another way potentially of doing this, becoming increasingly, increasingly probable every year. And I've, I've tried a few really great demos over the years. And that's something that I think BeamUp is heavily involved in as well, right? That's pixel streaming. Um, so pixel yeah, streaming are, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> is, could theoretically be a hack to uh, fix this in the sense that you only need to kind of have a VR client and all of the rendering is done somewhere else. It doesn't yeah. matter what engine's being run. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. what infrastructure is being run. You yep. just hop service, you, you dial into a different location, and you then experience a different platform. And then it's up to the individual platforms to implement overlapping standards. Like, let's say, for example, they share information between platforms about your yeah. kind of persistent metaverse avatar, or they share object classes about, let's say, the clothes that you're wearing, or your yeah. home space. And, and then it doesn't necessarily matter as much about standardizing the programming. It's yeah. just basically really quickly bridging between different platforms this, whatever distribution you want to use with a few kind of shared standards. And mm -hmm. I think that would be a more likely first step than a completely standardized metaverse protocol. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if, I, uh, if I could just try and summarize what I hear you said is that uh, mm. I'm basically hearing you say, well, look, it's all nice that everybody wants to, to join in and have an opinion mm. and uh, possibly have an agenda, right? If you, mm. I'm, I'm pretty sure. You know, I'm speaking for myself here, but pretty sure that the politics of the whole thing definitely ties into it. You know, companies like Meta, Microsoft, they would be more than happy to have a very strong influence on where things are going to make sure that it goes in a way that, you know, will benefit them. So there's a mm. lobby there as well. 
Um, but what I'm hearing you saying is like it's all nice and well, but we're probably better off with just an open market and where people develop and uh, and the whole thing you know grows based on adoption. Honestly, it could go either way. The wild card is that they all get together and they build a completely shared collaborative metaverse standard that they say, hey, guys, if you build to this standard, it doesn't use Unreal. It doesn't use Unity. It's a completely new thing that we've all co-founded and co-invested in. Mm. I'd be surprised. I don't think that's really what they're necessarily getting at. I think mm. it more is just formally agreeing on a few ways to exchange information between platforms at this stage. I think that's probably the most likely first step. Yeah, it's 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 a really crazy problem. And over time, you run that for 30 years, you know, it might become really easy. I, as far as I understand, it took decades to get to the point where uh, the Internet could be built simply or well, not yeah. simply, but built at all. Uh, it took years and years of experimentation on protocols. And there are a few yeah. I didn't realize this as a millennial, but there were apparently a few competitors <laughs> to the Internet. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that were launched at a similar time. But what we know is the internet, which was one particular kind of set of standards, I believe, yeah. was the one that took off for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, that's true. I, I Even I was I was too young to be really aware of that process going on, but I, I do, I can confirm what you're saying. When it first came up, my thought was, this is great. You know, mm. people are talking about this. They're thinking about how can we collaborate on a moving forward. And if mm. you look back at the 90s, um, early 2000s it was a bit of a mess right i mean ultimately the reason companies like meta formerly known as facebook and microsoft and google became is probably more google and, and meta than microsoft in this particular case but they became as big and powerful as they are is because there was this massive you know battle going on it was really you know a, a slaughter field i mean we we don't remember but the amount of companies that have fallen by the side mm. of the road, being acquired, um, uh, assimilated, you resistance was futile, um, is, is, is massive. And that's led to the situation that we have today. And, uh, you know, technologically wise, we've made it very far, but, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a big dark side to that because, you know, the whole Cambridge Analytica mm. thing was something that came along, piggybacked along on that because, the market decided where things were going and people were uninformed. So mm. my thought was the fact that now we're at least all talking about it might be an improvement <laughs> over the last Massively. time. Massively. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess from, from my perspective in terms of thinking about this as a creator who would want to just build something, the idea would be I design a world using a 3D app of some description, let's say Unreal, let's say Blender, whatever it ends up being. And then there is a button where it says publish to Metaspace world or something, right? And then it you're, pushes you're it up to some great big, <laughs> yeah, global container, um, you know, that contains hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of worlds um, that are interaccessible. Um, and that's all it needs to be. And then the, I guess beyond that, what, what, you know, programming is each of them running? Maybe there are some really basic kind of standardized classes that you can drop into the world's and 63 different platforms understand how to use them. Maybe it is a lot more abstract than that, where it really is just a standard of spatial protocols that is incredibly simplified, and it can be interpreted really simply. Um, I think the thing that I would personally like to avoid, and I'm, I know I'm not alone here, is one company controlling what we would think of as the metaverse. Um, Effectively, if this gets big enough in the way that we're going, it would be it would be one group of people having their finger on the pulse of all information being exchanged by a, a planet and potentially beyond, which is which is scary. 
Um, yes, Mr. So, Mr. Rife, right? Isn't that his name in Snow Crash, Rife? Oh, that's a good question. Possibly <laughs> the cowboy. Yeah, the cowboy. Mm. L. Bob Rife. Yes. There we <laughs> go. Another great book. Another great book. One of my favorites. Yeah, I recently uh, I reread it. Uh, it's mm. funny. I, I completely forgot I read it. Uh, I'll admit when people mm. started talking about Snow Crash, I was like, I haven't read this book. And then when I started reading it, there was all these scenes and I was like, holy shit, I read this when I was super young, somewhere in the 90s mm. probably. Um, and I thought it was pretty scary. And, and I, I read it actually, funny enough, I read it right on the back of um, another book called Otherworld, the City of Golden Shadow. Otherland, mm. the city of golden shadow, which actually describes okay. this future world like in Ready Player mm. One. It describes this world where, where everybody can live in virtual reality and a lot of kids do it. And then suddenly kids mm. start going into a coma. And so basically the best way doctors can describe it in the story is that they, they, their souls are gone. And so the souls mm. are being stolen through the, it's, it's also, uh, it's really a, a super cool book to read. Uh, very scary as well. Mm. Uh, which is often the case with these these things. But I, I think that you and me would agree that um, although a lot of these books and that, you know, are involved with the whole concept of metaverse and the way people think about it, they're all very dystopic, right? But I think mm. that I personally believe that we're now actually in a way moving towards this future in a, a, from a from a good angle. Right. This whole movement around the world about decentralization, around, you know, taking back control over our, our, our data, our privacy, um, that's mm. that's driving this whole metaverse industry now. I think that's a good thing, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way I think of it is, I guess, aesthetically, the future is maybe less cyberpunk than people thought it might be in the 80s. Right. But thematically, there is definitely a lot of overlap in terms of uh, exactly as you say, uh, data privacy, that kind of thing. And the best that we can do is learn from those books. A number of them are surprisingly prescient. Um, another great one I would definitely read. It's it's a bit of a bit of a weird book, but the Difference Engine um, by the chap that wrote Neuromancer. Oh yes, I haven't read that one. I read Neuromancer <laughs> yeah. on my holiday, but uh, the Difference. Yeah. Yes. So to summarize it for the audience, so no worries. The Difference <laughs> Engine basically. Uh, explores the idea of an information revolution like the dot-com boom happening during the 19th century when a real-life inventor called Charles Babbage, who prototyped one of the first mechanical computers, built a follow-up uh, called the Difference Engine that worked as a proper computer and it triggered a tech boom in 1830. Um, and it's an absolutely insane book, but it's it was written in the 90s and it really kind of touches on a lot of what's going on right now, but in a completely different context. And it's it's just a really interesting way to kind of look at our culture from a different viewpoint. Anyway, um, back to the point. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, but back to your point. Yeah. Um, I think they were this topic as well, because we were going through a huge kind of turbulent period back then. There was a lot of wealth inequality going on. Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of interesting tech and it was a question of, what, what happens if this goes wrong? How is this mm. tech going to be to deprive us of our rights? Um, and now we're at a point where we can manifest a lot of the technology, but we just need to do it responsibly. If you yeah. look at the internet as a great example, of course, it was a double-edged sword. It's done so much good. Um, we wouldn't be having this conversation without the internet. And I, I reckon, you know, despite the fact, you know, we both come from Europe, well, I, I know, I know Brexit, but culturally there's a lot of kind of 
of of Europe in Britain these days still, yeah. and I hope days. Um, but uh, our cultures have gotten a lot closer because mm. of the internet, and they're oh, going to get closer again because of the metaverse. Um, and a platform that has simultaneously brought so many people together has also caused quite a lot of uh, conflict. Maybe that's okay. inevitable. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure. Um, but it would be irresponsible of us to not be aware of that as we build these platforms going forward. I think ultimately we we need to get to know each other better as a planet. We need to learn to trust each other and we need to build stronger bridges. So it's I, d- it's I don't want to really... overwhelm the audience, but um, have you ever um, read God's Debris? It's a thought experiment from Scott Adams. I actually haven't, no. Oh, man. <laughs> Go. This is what you can read it in, like you know, one day, one two days, one afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this great idea. It's a thought experiment, right? So, basically, the the idea behind the book, uh, and it's a little bit of a, you know, it's not a real spoiler, but the idea is that basically, if you had an omnipot, om, omnipotent, and omniscient, I love these words. Hard to pronounce for a Dutchman, but uh, God, mm-hmm. there, there would be nothing left to do, right? And, mm. and 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 life existence would be intolerably boring and everything because I mean, mm. you know, you know what's going to happen. You know, you, <laughs> nothing can happen. There's no risk. There's no reason. There's no purpose in life. So, what does this mm. omnipotent, omniscient God do? Commits suicide, blows himself to schmitterines, and that <laughs> is the universe. We are God's debris, and everything, everything that happens is that God, because ultimately that God cannot die, putting itself back together. And so the whole drive, interconnectivity to create, we are all divine pieces that are trying to connect mm. together again to reform this God. It's it, it's a lovely book. It, it um, I really recommend it. It's very cool. But that ties into what, you, you know, what you're saying. Um, this great develop, we, we have this internet. It is, it's created this great opportunity for us to be connected over tremendous distance um, with so many people all at once, you know, allowing us to share ideas, um, interact with each other, inspire each other. And yet at the same time, it's brought also so much toxicity and it has put in contrast some of the conflicts that go back to the beginning of time for humanity and even, you know, acted as a lens on them. But the metaverse, I think, is potentially, and then I go back to that blank slate, it might be that that moment where we can um, fix some of the mistakes that we made over the last two decades, and this brings me to another topic: avatars. Because one yes. of the reasons so many people have problems, one of the reasons we misunderstand each other on the internet, is probably, in my opinion, a lack of a big piece of communication. Right? Just mm-hmm. words doesn't encapsulate our, you know, our lang- body language, our, our, our voice modulation. You know, mm. why are podcasts and vodcasts so popular? It's because you can actually listen to people and you can hear the inflection in their voice, etc. Gives you much better understanding of the energy that they have, the passion that they feel, right? Yes. We talked about your voice before a show and how impactful that is when you're listening to somebody's story. What are your yeah. thoughts on this? Ready Player Me, you already mentioned that. You know, what's going on there? Where, where is this going? I think... I think you've touched on a really great point. Um, the way I would summarize it is, say, for example, on Twitter or on the YouTube comment or something, when someone says something ridiculous or, or particularly uh, unkind, where we're very good at going, Psh, you know, whatever. But in the real world, when you meet someone, you immediately recognize them as a person. And the majority of time, people try to find a way to connect with that person, even if they don't necessarily understand how to at the beginning. 
Um, and I think that is the key difference, or one of the key differences at least, between the internet and the metaverse is that you're you're not meeting representations of people through text. You're meeting much closer representations of, of who someone is through an avatar, right? Um, so so I've I've only had maybe one two negative interactions with people wait, wait, in wait, VR. Let me, let me let me just you just said something very interesting. You said you're gonna meet somebody that's a closer representation of who they truly mm. are than even your physical form, right? That's what you said, right? I think eventually that's where it's gonna go. Yeah. Mm. Um, my take on avatars is go nuts. I don't think we need to necessarily tie them in any way to to what our physical body is. I think it's a chance to be who you want to be. In the book um, Snow Crash, um, mm. it's very specifically mentioned that there's uh, certain restrictions on avatars on the street, mm. right? The metaverse is called, the, you know, this <laughs> yes. area is called the street because uh, people can look like walking penises. But if you allow people <laughs> to make walking penises the size <laughs> of a skyscraper, then yeah, yeah. it would be really annoying, right? Um, mm. And you just said, you know, go nuts on the avatar. So how far, how far should people be able to take this? Let's find out. I mean, I think you got to think of your audience, right? If it's, let's say, for example, an education app, you're you're going to want to basically say, right, okay, these avatars can't be distracting. They certainly can't be inappropriate. Um, but beyond that, how do people want to express themselves? Uh, there might be other situations of certain apps where it's more video game focused, where it's like, okay, if your avatar is 685 meters tall, that's going to break gameplay. So we probably want to set a height limit. Um, there's, there's definitely going to be not safe for work limits on a lot of apps, which is just like the real internet. It's a case of, you know, who, who are you getting here? Is it appropriate to expose certain audiences to this kind of content? What if I um, want to walk around looking like Alistair Yu? Now that is a massive question. <laughs> I don't actually know. Well, I mean, I guess there is some precedent. It, oh, right now online with say for example fake accounts that kind of thing i've, I've fortunately never experienced it but I've, I've i've got friends with bigger internet uh followings who do have fake accounts made and they're, they're reposting their own instagram photos that kind of thing um and typically right now we understand that to be inappropriate i think there's definitely but then for example what how would you walk around looking like let's say george clooney right someone that is in the public domain and how would you understand that this person isn't trying to impersonate George Clooney, but rather kind of, let's say, uh, look like them in a, in a more kind of entertainment way? Uh, and I, I think it's going to be up to platforms to kind of figure out this distinction. It's really Ultimately, right there, isn't it? I mean, th mm, there's this yeah. account um, that's using deepfake to uh, look like Tom Cruise, but this guy's mm, actually... Yeah impersonating Tom Cruise. But what mm. if somebody, I mean, but there's also this Chinese guy uh, mm. who's been actually banned from Chinese television because he looks just like Elon Musk. And he was, wow. you know, making these videos and he was banned from a local and national television and even, you know, from the internet, I think, in China, because there they can do that because uh, they felt that because of the way he looked, he was influencing how people thought because of the affiliation with Elon Musk. It's a really, really interesting point. Um, I think, I, I don't know if you've watched it, but recently a TV show called The Orville. It's it's a little Star Trek-y. It's really fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, one of their most, it's, one of the uh, most recent episodes. I, I hate comedy, but okay. I'll, if you say it's <laughs> yeah. great, I'm going to um, give it a go. <laughs> yeah, it's and it gets better with each season as well. They uh, it, it, it started off being Family Guy in space, and it's kind of moved on to, hey, why don't we just focus on the big questions? You know, the, the comedy can come second. It's awesome. Anyway, point is, 
in one of the most recent episodes, they look at an election on in a kind of alien planet, yeah. and they watch a candidate that they're familiar with basically spraying a crowd with tear gas and saying they're all going to have their families killed and all of the rest. Yeah. And the one of the main characters goes, "That's horrible." And, and we like this guy. And then someone says, "That never happened. That's all a deep fake." And tens of thousands of these deep fakes are being sent to this culture's version of the internet every second. And this candidate's doing the exact same thing to their opponent. So where does truth even come into it in a culture like that? And it's it's a fantastic and very prescient point because it's happening to us right now and it's only going to get easier to do in the future, right? We just reconnected um, with the three-body problem. I don't know if you realize mm, that, but, you know, in this series, yeah. this, this alien civilization, the reason they decide at some point they need to exterminate us is because they find out that humans are capable of lies and they are not <laughs> because they're a telepathic uh, species. Mm. So everybody can hear everybody's thoughts. So there's no, you know, there's no... Um, miss, uh, miss, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, misdirection. There's no lies, mm. there's no uh, deception. And then the, when they find out that we can do this, they consider that, you know, a massive threat. Um, mm. and this is, this is actually exactly the thing because, you know, up until this point, you know, misdirection and, and, and deception has always been a part of human culture and in, in our society. But if we go into a world where literally everything is completely configurable to the to you know photorealistic level and this is where we're headed i mean your your own video yeah. long-term future of the metaverse talks about this how will we be able to distinguish between what is real and what is not i think just just touching on the big picture for a second i think we're going to get it right as a culture and hopefully manifest some form of this great big beautiful future that everyone talks about if we properly learn to trust each other. Um, and beyond that, the question is, how do we help people do that? The metaverse is going to have a huge element of this in the sense that it's going to allow people to build bridges. It's going to allow people to represent sides of themselves they might not necessarily in the real world. And it's not a replacement for the real world. Rather, it's a new tool that sits alongside it at least for the next few decades, you know, maybe one day it'll be seamless, who knows, but we would need to really improve the interface for that. And I don't think we're ready for it as a culture yet. You you asked a second ago, you know, what if you want to walk around looking like Alistair Hume? That's a great point. And the honest answer is, I don't know. Will that help us to learn to trust each other? Will it allow us to trust each other less? Um, where, where does it fit? So I'm going to reflect on that over the next few weeks and, and see if I can touch on it in a future YouTube video. But um, sorry, I think in general, we are approaching an age where there is no guarantee that what we're seeing mm. is reflective of some kind of truth, at least in terms of things like politics. We, we still we still have fallbacks like science, for example. That's a really in mathematics. That's a really great kind of baseline for something slightly more objective. But beyond that, the real question of our age is us as a culture learning to talk to each other in a mature way. Um, we're clearly not there yet. Um, and I, I think there's going to be more lessons to learn before we get there. But I think hopefully, oh, slowly, the thing we need to do is connect ourselves up together. Not necessarily immediately on the phone all the time, bombarding with information, but just allowing us to reach out to each other and understand what we're thinking about more. Maybe one day we won't have as much of a need to lie to each other as we do right now. 
And I think that, if we get it right, is what this tech is going to give to people. That's a, that's a wonderful note to finish on. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, Likewise. I, uh, I would suggest that we, uh, we do this again in uh, maybe 12 months or so, see where things are at at that point. Before we, uh, we finish off, if people want to know more about you, want to know more about Axon Park, more about your vision <clears throat> of the future, where should they go? Sure, absolutely. So there are two places. So for my nerdy metaverse tech philosophy stuff and just a bit of fun inside Unreal Engine, it's my YouTube channel, Alistair Hume. And for what we're building, uh, this education metaverse, it's axonpark.com. Um, we're going to be revealing a lot more information over the next few months. Um, and right now, you know, we're basically, if you are a creator or an educator, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. We want to know what kind of tools you want to see. Um, and, you know, over time, we'll get you testing our platform and teaching people inside the metaverse. Um, yeah, beyond that, uh, there's so much great content out there. If you If you want to get involved, just start by finding other creators. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate that. I think all of us really appreciate this. Uh, personally, from, from the conversations that we had, I think that uh, this will be a smashing comeback episode. Uh, we touched <laughs> on so many cool things. Uh, I, I think you, uh, I wrote down new books to go and read. Um, thank you so much. For those of you out there that are listening to the show now on Spotify or iTunes or any of your preferred platforms, uh, obviously, if, if you didn't know it yet, this is where you can find us. Uh, this will also be released on our YouTube channel, which is Your Open Metaverse on YouTube. And you can follow us on Twitter at Yo Metaverse. So just one M in there to uh, to hear everything that we're doing on the platform um, and to stay up to date on new episodes from State of the Metaverse, obviously. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. See you in the Metaverse.